This is an irregularly regular podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It is the air that is breathed and the water that nourishes and provides, but ownership of land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. You've reached Michael. I tend to go by M over the interwebs. And this is my third episode. I'm hoping that things sound a bit more clearer and crisper uh, because I gave myself um, an audio upgrade between episodes. So for any regular listeners out there, anyone outside my family is a bonus at this point. If you're hearing something of an auditory evolution, then that means um, my uh, personal investment in all of this stuff is working. What I have for my third episode is a comrade, not only a comrade, uh, an elite comrade in that we're also Wanderers fans. Um, so we're, we're like commandos, basically, when it comes to the Sydney left. Um, so <laughs> I've, got, um, I've got mate Carlo. How's it going, Carlo? Yeah, good. How are you going? Yeah, I'm all right. Bit bit rainy getting the gear out to um to do a podcast. I'll also just let uh, the listeners know this is my first online effort. I'm chatting with Carlo over Skype. So, yeah, we were doing a bit of mucking around at the start, which um was nothing out of the ordinary with um with previous if previous podcasts or anything to go by, but um as it is, I've had the fortune of having some very patient interviewees so far. Thank you for your candor, Carlo. I know that you, you do the comedian stuff as well as some activism. Yep. Give us a bit of a spiel about yourself. Well, for probably been uh, on the, the left of year, like since going back into the, the 90s in Perth, I've been a socialist. Not particularly aligned with anyone at the moment, but was for many, many years. Uh, and also a bit writer uh, and, as you say, a comic. I've done a couple of solo shows, stand-up comedy, and I work with the Un-Australian satirical team you can check that out at the unaustralian.net if you want um yeah and just not really doing a huge amount at the moment find it a bit hard to i don't know how you find it but i find it a bit hard to sort of get any kind of focus or, or motivation in the middle of a global pandemic of uncertain uh duration and and all the rest of it how, how are you finding it at the moment um well I work as a community worker outside of being an activist and student. And I've, yeah, normally when I'm doing the community work, it's, um, of course, face to face, go visit people. But that's that's obvious taken a bit of a U turn. So I've had to come up with online ways of um, engaging with people. It's been, um, a lot of it's been faffing about, other parts of it have been uh, on the part of patient funders. I think a, 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 Big part of it has been the fact that everything's just been put on pause, and uh, I think my yeah, employers yeah. and funders have been quite um, well reluctantly accepting of that. And I think for me, the what's been the what favourable in these circumstances is that no one knows what they're doing. 
And I guess that's in yeah. a very um, innocent way because this is a very unprecedented times. But I suppose with you, Carlo, like if you're doing the comedian stuff, uh, I'm guessing perhaps the, the gigs and the opportunities have dried up. Uh, how's, it, how's it going for you on your end in that regard? Um, well, most of the rooms shut down. They're, they're reopening. But, I mean, I was sort of already a bit over, a bit over the stand-up comedy rooms, a bit over stand-up comedy in general, to be honest. Um, so I haven't really been doing that. Mainly we've just been doing live performance with the Un-Australian. We just do you know, one or two shows a year. So for me, it hasn't had a huge impact because most of what I do is writing. Okay. Um, but for the, yeah, definitely has, the rooms just shut for a, for a whole period of time. And I suspect if you look at one of these... Um, Positive cases in Sydney. There, were, if you look at the, the rooms, the pubs they were going to, they listed it. The first two were open mic comedy nights, so I reckon it's an open mic comic. He's gone around breathing into into a microphone. So I don't know that you know, as a performer or a crowd member, I'd be that keen to be in a small room with a, a bunch of stand up open mic comics. Well, I remember when I one time I found you, Carlo. It was at the um, the Factory Theatre in Enmore. And um, where you were performing was um, was a remodified, like it was basically like about 20, 25 rows of three or four chairs. And because of my um, pathological lateness in things, uh, I find myself in the back rows, just kind of peering down, um, peering down the looking glass, as it were, to see you there, Carlo. Uh, I'm on that particular gig from memory, so I'm wondering uh, if that might not necessarily be the most conducive environs for environment for um, performing right now. No, that's yeah, probably probably not. Yeah, that's um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are desperate for something, but I don't I don't know. Like I I, I mean I don't know as well. Like I'm sure the comedy rooms are people who run them are doing what they can with. Um, safety measures, but you'd, you'd want to have multiple microphones at least. You'd think. I don't know. I don't really know how how they're making it. How they're making it work. It's sort of a bit like. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to pubs at the moment, and I love going to pubs. Mm. Less because I'm worried about getting COVID, because I'll probably get COVID going to work uh, on the train. Like it's more. I don't want to be the one giving a long list of, you know, 29 places if I get it. You know, that, um, <laughs> closes 29 bars down. They got to contact. 3,000 people, you know, that's more, more for that, more, more for that. Like I'm probably more likely to get it on the train, you know, getting, I get the Lebanon, Lebanon train in the mornings and that goes right through. It's about where, where you are, is it? You live out in the, the Southwest. Yeah. I, I live in a, um, in a, a Corona hotspot yeah. as it's been described yeah. by the Queensland premier. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's all a bit rando as to how it's all being handled. Um, and I suppose that's the effect of, of things still very much left to the marketplace um, where private proprietaries have their own ways of, uh, of maintaining social distancing and contact tracing and also depending upon whereabouts in the state you end up and how well business owners and places are, are holding all of that stuff or doing all of that stuff. Yeah, no, that's true. Kind of um, get the sense that there is a bit of ground zero happening but look uh I don't know about other people, but I, I have been a bit desperate to, to kind of do the outside stuff. Desperate enough that last night I went to the cinema for the first time in a few months and um, I actually found myself watching like a Russell Crowe movie 
which uh, I don't really find myself doing um, at, at the times where uh, we had the, the prior status quo. But here I am watching a Russell Crowe movie, and, and, and also, funnily enough, it had a very um, ironic title named Unhinged. So I don't think it was much of a reach for Russell Crowe in terms of the role he was playing in that movie. Uh, how many telephones did he throw at um, random people? Uh, <laughs> you'll be surprised. <laughs> he, but he, he keeps up with the times, does uh, does uh, New Zealand's Russell. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, he was uh, famous for chucking the landline phone, uh, wasn't he? But, yeah, yeah in this yeah, movie, well, like, he... Um, yeah. Sorry? The hotel, was it? Yeah, hotel lobby, kicked off, threw a landline at the concierge, um, went worldwide. In, uh, in this instance, he's, uh, he's kind of moved with the times, Russell, and now he's beating the shit out of people with um, mobile phone handsets instead. Yeah, you've got you to you adapt with technology changing. Yeah, but it was also quite a bit odd watching that movie as well in the sense that um, it was obviously a movie that was made for COVID-19. Here's all these people just behaving like absolute dickheads, like in the, in the freedom and liberty of the outside. Do you get anxious watching these things? Like, if you, there's no social distancing on a TV show, do you get, like, a bit, like, spontaneously, like, that's not right? Well, I am becoming a bit self-aware of it because I was, you know, like movie plot holes aside, uh, uh, just <laughs> watching the actual flick, it was like, oh, okay, uh, there's there's more than than three people in 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 the room where Russell Crowe's um, murdering people. It's a, it's kind of mitigating upon the upon the wants and violence, yeah. and the movie experience, I suppose. But you do know, you re- do you recommend the film? How what's what's your take? The take. Uh, uh, like I said, I, I think it's been a case of just wanting to get out and about, and that's the first movie I've seen in, like, a few months. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's interesting, because I'm less... Like, I, I, I'd i be worried about that, because all the infections seem to be indoors. I'm less worried outdoors. Like, I don't go to pubs, and I probably wouldn't go to a cinema, but I went to, like, two Wanderers games, and it's, like, on the basis that, like... There's, Social distancing is not a problem. There's hardly anyone there, mm. um, and you and you're out in the outdoors. You know, like it's sort of don't sit next to strangers. Don't fucking shake hands to anyone. You know. So Keep you've been you've been to Wanderers matches like live in the stadium. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. What? Well, yep. Tell me a bit more about that, Carlo. Because I suppose with the cinema, it's just straightforward. Like you go and you sit wherever. And plus, it was a Russell Crowe movie, so they weren't really. I think they were anticipating the demand wasn't going to be that high. Yeah, at a Wanderers match, like, um, what what are the conditions like in terms of social distancing at the moment? Oh, it's there's no real issue with that. Basically, you got to go. You, you can, you know, you've got to go in through the gate that you're specified to go in. But it's you're talking like a thirty thousand, and then you've got to sit in a row or the rest of it. But it's not like um, you're talking thirty thousand stadium, and there was two thousand people there. So it's that's that's really not that's really not an issue. You can only play. In, Pay with cards if you're getting getting food or a drink. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, cashless, isn't it? Real, yeah, it's cashless. Yeah, so I feel like it's a lot less. I'd, yeah, I'd be more worried spending spending you know half an hour or longer in an indoor indoor environment than than outdoors. I mean, that maybe that's a bit impressionistic, and I could be totally wrong. But just when you look at where, certainly in New South Wales, where all the things have come from. We'll get a test because there was the guy who tested positive who went to a Newcastle A-League game. Okay. So then it's, it's, that's going to be a question of, well, 
did he spread it to anyone else or does it all do the do the various you know hand sanitizers social distancing things make it unlikely at a at a sporting event if you you only know, have a certain number of fans allowed in wasn't there a Newcastle um, Jets youth player that was that tested positive as well yeah 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 and it was connected that's how we got it i think um, oh, okay he's yeah, he was, yeah, he's, he's a relative or a friend of the, yeah, under-15s Newcastle Jet, Jet guy who got it. Yeah, so that'll, we'll, we'll see. But it's a bit like with the Black Lives Matter stuff, like in Melbourne, where there were people who were positive who were at, who were at the black, the big Black Lives Matter rally, but they hadn't found any any evidence that they passed it on to anyone there. Like, it just seems an interesting, you know, I don't, maybe I shouldn't read too much into it because I'm no expert on it, but I, I'm certainly more concerned about indoor for myself than I, than than an outdoor place that maintains social distancing and hand sanitizer. Mm. Well, it's interesting uh, that 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 um that you raise that that dichotomy between indoor and outdoor settings. When I when I first had a think about it, it's like um you think that the indoor settings would be a lot more controlled and and managed. You're saying that it's in fact the, around the other way that when you're outside there's actually a bit more management and and marshalling that that's happening compared to indoors i think it's probably also how air like about the open air and and how the germs actually spread as opposed to like indoors like in an office where you just got air conditioning just recycles the air around or the air's not moving around versus just being so it'll just hang around a fair bit longer i think it's that as well as yeah i mean obviously in outdoor events you can have a terrible outdoor event if you've got the right marshalling or the right social distancing measures and uh, imposed, like you know, you can't you know go where you want and sit where you want. It's not not that it's entirely safe, but then nothing's entirely safe at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, maybe it'll spread like wildfire that Newcastle as a result of that Newcastle Jets game, and and um, I'll be proven entirely wrong. <laughs> so well, that was at New- at Newcastle that match as well. Yeah, at the stadium there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because how many matches have the Wanderers played so far? Because I know from from memory, I can I know there's been that Gosford and there's been one at Parramatta, yeah. like at the home stadium. Yeah, two two at Parra because I went to both of them, <laughs> and um, desperate. I mean, I'll tell you what, you can't have is the RVB, that, and that's sort of half the fun of going. But it's a little bit obviously that's literally impossible to do whilst maintaining any kind of safety. Yeah, so I went to two, and then there was a game at Cogra. Um, that was the one on Friday. Yeah, uh, we we're talking about before we started recording, but that was you couldn't get tickets to that because it was a home game for the other side. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think I think the only reason would be the only people who were going to turn up are Wanderers fans, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the reason, but you couldn't get tickets to that hmm. anywhere. And there's a cap on these matches, isn't there? Like how many people can apply for tickets? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, it, I, I believe it's something like a quarter of the stadium, but both the Wanderers games I went to were well, well under that. One was about two thousand something. One was one thousand and something. Yeah, one and a half thousand. Yeah, you know, so in a thirty thousand stadium, so it's not really. Yeah, the outdoor stuff because you know you've seen sporting events, crowds at sporting events. You know, for for a couple of months, a month or so, um, and there hadn't been all the outbreaks were you know places like cafes and pubs and. And restaurants or a lot of work venues in Victoria. I just haven't heard of any uh, as a result of a sporting event or a rally. 
Yeah, well, there have been a couple of rallies for Black Lives Matter in the city, like in Sydney. And I suppose that's where we're a bit more informed to talk about compared to other uh, locations. Correct me if I'm wrong, Carlo, we had one event where it was an 11th hour agreement by the state magistrate to hold the event, and then two since, hold the rally rather, and then two since then where it was... um, uh, against legal advice, is that was is that the fair rundown of what's happened so far? I'm trying to think about that second one. I don't recall that second one being banned. Um, there was a lot of police at it, and that's the one that was at the domain, and it was um, surrounded basically by police. Okay, but there was social distancing maintained, and the people, the speakers, were constantly saying, you know, make sure it's Keep a, keep a distance and all the rest of it. Um, and then eventually that one marched, and I think the police did try and stop it marching. And But, yeah, it was, I'm not quite sure what the legal status of it, but the one just the other week before last or whenever it was, yeah, that was banned. And because it's going to be quite small anyway, it just it didn't really happen is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. I know the third wasn't given legal consent, and I think I, I can remember just watching the, the news and, and seeing um, removals of people from the rally and, um, yeah, uh, the, the story of having more cops there than actual protesters. So there was a bit of overkill on behalf of the police, and um, I probably also contend as well that that's probably a, that was probably a deterring measure by the cops as well to, to make, in the event that if there was going to be any more future thoughts of having events of that kind that that would act as a disincentive because uh, the police would basically be out there in in, in in military fashion, I suppose, to stop that stuff oh, from happening. For, I think they were looking for revenge a bit for that first court, for that first one, because that first one was, by the time the courts allowed it, there was already tens of thousands of people at Town Hall. Mm. And so it was a bit of a beta company. Like, and I think the police had no choice but to go, okay, well, not just the court hearing, but just the sheer numbers of people, they let that happen. Mm, mm. And that one, like, they use this they, COVID stuff, but they weren't wearing masks. Like, the cops weren't wearing masks. The protesters were, and none of the cops were. It's just a little bit ridiculous. I think that that sense of, of people still social distancing and maintaining PPE, PPE and all those sorts of measures... I think that's been something that's been under-documented and under-considered with, um, with each of these rallies. Would it be true to say that um, it exposes a bit of the, the contradictions of, of the, the police and the role of the police in these events? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's ob- it just seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, the cops use any excuse to try and increase their own powers and, you know, prevent any protests they don't like, particularly when it's um, about black deaths in custody because that's directed at them. Yeah. And that's directed at their own power. So they any any excuse to harass that, that type of a protest, they definitely want to take. They definitely want to take. And I really think they knew that it was a, it was a weak day. It was all kinds of reasons with the one that was, that was banned. On top of the fact it got banned, it was best case scenario, it was going to be a lot smaller than the others. And they just sensed their opportunity and just went hard, I think, mm. like making sure it was banned and making sure their presence was so large it basically didn't happen. Uh, I have been, um, I suppose, involved in this sort of stuff for, um, I guess, for all of my adult life, becoming a bit radicalised and conscientiised, that's a word, 
back when now. I was at uni. Sorry? It is now. <laughs> yeah, English is an evolving language, so you've just... Um, yeah. Process. All right, we'll make it so. The one thing I've noticed, particularly going through um, actions in Sydney, is that you, you go to one or two big events, and then after that there is a crackdown where it it seems to be, and I think you, you were harking upon something there earlier, Carlo, about that idea of it's almost like that, that homespun saying where it fooled me once, shame on you, fooled me twice, shame on me. And I kind of think yeah. that's how the, the cops try to um, approach it, particularly um, when they feel like they've been fooled for the third time. It's, it yeah. seems to be like a, a real idea of putting it within the equation of state in terms of what they can, um, what they will accept and what they won't. And to be honest, you see that with um, you see that with the treatment of other, like even outside protests, you see it with the treatment of Wanderers fans. Mm. Um, you know, often like if there's like bad press, but what the cops have done, then they just get, you know, like and the um, then they can get really full on, like they just don't like it, or 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 some sort of retreats forced on them. Mm. Um, you know, they got a step back a bit or whatever, there's an agreement that they won't be so full on. I mean, because it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, there's a bit, bit in the media, but some, some not all the time, but sometimes the policing of those Wanderers games have been as bad as anything I've seen in a rally, like and worse, far worse than most rallies. Like it's um, insane. And I think you see them sometimes, if they've got bad press or they're forced into a retreat, they wait for the next chance and they're extra, <laughs> extra bad. You know? Yeah. There's a few examples we've brought up here. So these actions where you have the, the usual lefty suspects as well as um, an emergingly vibrant Black Lives Matter movement, not only within uh, the US but also within Australia um, and other nations in solidarity. We also mentioned um, Wanderers fans. And I'd also like to add a third wrinkle there and uh, to hark back to, um, to stuff I was having a chat about a couple of episodes ago. My first episode with a fellow called Peter with public housing residents and the overt... Peter, Peter Perkins? Peter Perkins, yes. The, the overt police-based response to what was going on with COVID infections in um, social housing towers in North Melbourne... For those that, um, that have experienced this, this is nothing new, but because we're seeing this extra dimension here, and we can have a bit more of a chat about it, Carlo, but because there's this extra dimension here about uh, COVID as an issue, I feel that there's suddenly some events and issues here that are being examined by the mainstream media and through everyday conversation that aren't normally explored. And we've mentioned three examples there where the, the police response seems to be overt, but through my experience, and um, I would hazard to say anyone else in similar circumstances, that, that is nothing new. What, what's your thoughts there, Carlo? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, there's um, different sectors in this society that experience the police very, very differently. And, and that lived experience explains some of the difficult conversations. Like, you, you don't have to talk to any Aboriginal person about the police. But, you know, it's a lived experience of just constant harassment. And I mean, I remember back in um, when I used to work and uh, in office of Goda was in uh, Chippendale to get off at Redfern Station in um, 2004 after the police killed uh, TJ Hickey, the 17 year old mm. Aboriginal kid on the block, mm. basically chased him to his death. Mm. And 
I got off the train in the morning and didn't know anything you know, Monday morning and this is what had happened over the over the night before and it was just broken glass everywhere Riffin train station was like torched um, burnt cop cars and then you sort of find out what happened and it was basically street fighting by those often by very young um, as, you know, as young as like five or six um, on but often like 10 11 12 on on the streets that kept the in the aftermath of T.J. Hickey's murder, the cops apparently just drove up and down the block yelling racist abuse at them until finally the community there snapped and they just started uh, using the bottles from the, the Glen Garrett Castle Hotel there. Yeah. Um, which is a nice pub. Uh, and mm. they just drove out police, drove out the riot police, and they held the riot police off for, like, hours. And behind that is... Sorry, Carlo, I just wanted to ask, can you remember when that happened? Like, what year the, the TJ Hickey tragedy happened? Yeah, that was that was 2004. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I just, um, yeah, going down down there to the block when there was a community rail in the aftermath of that, and the stories that you heard, like, people just say, if you're an Aboriginal kid, as soon as you get off the block, because they had an agreement that the police uh, weren't meant to go onto the block because tensions was too you know, because of their behaviour, really. Um, the police broke it, and they broke it when TJ, after TJ Hickey died. That's part of what sparked it. They went driving up and down. They weren't meant to be there. Yeah. Um, but they said as soon as they get off the block, the cops would chase the kids and just bash them if they get them. Yeah. And that's what happened to TJ Hickey. You saw the cops pedal as fast as he could. The police denied that they hit the back of his bike, but there's evidence that they did, and he was impaled on the fence and yeah. died. Um, yeah. And, and it's... Um, just those stories, that's their lived experience, you know, and that's why, like, Lyle Munro, who I think died quite recently, speaking of that community rally, well, actually, yeah, he said we're proud of them, that we, we, we view those kids like we view the Palestinians. Mm. That's how they, against the Israeli army. Mm. Uh, uh, and I remember we went on late line around that time and I asked him, well, how do you think white Australia uh, views this? How do you think, you know, like, you, you're defending writing, how do you think white Australia, he's, and he says, fuck white Australia. <laughs> um that's, he said that a late line, you know, like after Tony Jones. It was, um, you know, that's the lived experience. And obviously not just them. There's a whole lot of people of colour, you know, in, in the working class areas. Uh, and that comes into the experience in, you know, in, in Melbourne recently. Um, yeah, it's, and I'm sure you, you know this all very, very well yourself. Um, that their experience of police is different from, a, you know, a lot of others. And a lot of people, even a lot of working class people, when there was more industrial action, had a like white working class people had more of a sense because they'd be on picket line more often than they are now. Mm. Uh, and that's either place. And so if you don't have that, then it's a lot harder discussion. Mm. You know, so, um, but there's sectors that just, they, they know what the police are because they, they deal with it every day. Yeah, an everyday circumstance. I do remember the, the TJ Hickey stuff and uh, what remains in memory was the, the instances of, of the rioting and particularly how it was framed in the media. Mm. What was um, minimised and potentially even non-existent were any police activities prior to those yeah. actions happening where they can be um, suggested that there was some potential agitation and goading particularly if there was um, some prior agreement between the cops and the block that it would be up yeah. for um, for elders to figure out first before it becomes a police issue. That seems to have been flouted yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. And it was a defensive action. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, what's the riot and what's, I don't know. I mean, it was street fighting, but it was, 
it was a defensive action. It was literally to uh, essentially liberate that space from police to, to actually ensure the police couldn't get there. Mm. And they, it was quite organised. They had supply lines and things like that. And, like, you know, like I say, they torch cock cars that they got their hands on. And for hours, for a number of hours, they couldn't, the, the right police couldn't take it back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that engendered an enormous sense of pride in that community. And that also doesn't get fed through in the media and in the coverage. All you see is, you know, the, the best that you get is a kind of liberal hand wringing. It's terrible. Isn't it terrible that police violence has led to this further violence and not an actual sense of this is actually a community organising itself to defend itself against systemic violence. Hmm. Uh, and the fact that they held them off for so long as a source of pride. I well, think that, that doesn't come across at all like in the media, but that's actually how it was experienced by that community. Yeah, yeah. Um, does the, the mass media have the capacity to, to do that sort of coverage? Um, I, I don't necessarily think so, even with the sections that, that would presumably be a bit more friendlier to those issues, particularly with the Black Lives Matter stuff that's happening now. There still seems to be that need to continue to try to understand everything through that that white middle-class lens. And I suppose that might be a reflection upon the ones that particularly take part in creating the media stories and the media productions and all that sort of thing. I, d I do remember, though, that, um, that the project on Channel 10, yeah. they offered one rare platform for the, the Dungay family to, to actually have a chat themselves about, um, about circumstances and yeah. uh, no punches were pulled um, from memory. And uh, I guess for a Channel 10 primetime show, I think they were quite, well, relatively speaking, I suppose they were quite considerate and, uh, uh, and compassionate. And also the promise of, of for the reportage of, uh, 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 and allowing the family to talk. Yeah. No, they, they were. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I read the, I read the coverage. And the main thing that focusing on was the, the conclusion when one of the, the Dungay family just had a go at them for, like, not um, reporting for four and a half four and a half years yeah um but in that in, in that sense i mean it's not to let the project or any media off the hook but often it's it's a change from below that forces things cracks things open you know like and and um without the big black lives matter project yes the project at all so there is there's that side of it and even like we get senses of where the media sometimes you know capitalist medias can be better they can have more space and that tends to be because they'll respond to actual there's a real audience out there that capitalists will they can make money uh they'll give more of a voice to it in order to, to feed that that market so a lot of it is when you do have that kind of a bigger audience for that type of view because it's been created through all the various struggles you often see greater openings in the media as a reflection mm. not that it's a neutral thing they, they tend to try to back the power for all the rest of it but they will adapt and they will give more space when there's enough of an audience sort of that forces itself on them yeah it's it's an interesting thing to to discuss because uh, i think the, the in some sections of of lefty peoples the there is that that more black and white view that um because it's mainstream therefore it's um it's 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 not necessarily useful and anything that you would see in that variation would uh, would would be automatically disregarded but I do see some value in, in seeing voices that aren't necessarily heard suddenly being heard. And as you mentioned, Carlo, that, that did not happen through the benevolence of 
the ones that normally produce the, the, these media platforms, um, as seen in in that clip on the on the yeah. project. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's good. It's a, it's a contested space. It's not a it's not a um, favourable space, but it, it's a contested space. And so, if you could any wrench out any like you know anything from it, then you you, you, know, you should. It's very very difficult to do, and so you should take every every opportunity. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think that's something that I've particularly observed through this pandemic. That spaces that seem to be a bit more, um, uh, I guess, persona non grata for lefty uh, marginalised types are suddenly up for grabs. Um, those contested spaces now. I think that's worth worth talking a bit more about, particularly into the future. And I think that that would also serve for for it to to make a bit more sense over where the politics and, and where the discussions are currently lying and what the impacts of the, the pandemic are. Because I, yeah. I, I do see opportunities. Uh, I mean, that's my, my personal view. And I, I feel like one good example there is that suddenly more contested spaces and places where they, they mightn't have necessarily had that, um, that contestation previously. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, a, a crisis like this throws everything up in, up in the air like a... Uh, and poses questions that have been posed before for larger numbers of of people, um, but it can go all kinds of ways. Yeah, I, I think uh, well, particularly in New South Wales, I think it's um it's a second wave in everything but name at the moment. We'll have to see uh, what happens in the next coming weeks. Um, so, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, moving forward, uh, Carlo, where do you where do you think you you're going to be? Um, in the next month or so, and where do you think the the world's going to be in the next month or so? To to ask you a particularly loaded question. Oh God, <laughs> I can't. Yeah, well, um, that's a very difficult question because the world itself, I don't think, is it's going to be in any sort of a better place than it is now. It'll probably be in the worst place than it is now. It's just a bit hard to see. Um, it's bit of a medium-term project to turn this around and we don't necessarily have much time because you know the climate crisis is really really starting to starting to bite um mm. i don't i don't going to try and predict what's going to happen here around in, in new south wales around COVID. it's obviously on edge but numbers haven't really gone up beyond 20 and the the question of whether or not there's enough contract tracing and whether or not really gets out of control seems at the moment an open question. Um, myself, I mean, I'm going to work. I work in, in an office and admins, but I'm like, oh, it's, it's partially open, but I, I go in five days a week, just the only person who does. Um, it's, to, it's quite difficult to explain. It's like a harm reduction for service for um, people who use drugs and it runs like a needle and syringe program and mail out and things, things like that that can't just stop. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's like essential work. To, yeah. yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. And, it's, and the, the Ministry of Health recognises that to its, to its credit. And we've expanded our work um, since this has started. So that is, if, if, if there's a second lockdown, I'll be back working from home. But short of that, um, we'll be on the Leppington train with, you know, everyone else coming out of hotspots um, and, you know, playing the train roulette yeah um 
Yeah, with with my organisation, we've we've already gone back to full lockdown. So yeah, it very much goes uh, depending upon the work that you do and the the position of your organisation in terms of how best to um to treat the, the the circumstances of the of the work situation. And my workplace takes it pretty seriously. I'm really impressed by you know the measures that have introduced from the start that have also been changing as situations has changed. So yeah, you do what you can. Mm. Yeah, through our chat, Carlo, I'm I'm kind of noticing that um, the stuff that is happening within these pandemic times, it's it's not necessarily stuff to engage with passively. I think there are some some new lines of struggle, some recomposed lines of struggle, um, and at the same time, it's like some of the the old lines still remain. For me, I suppose there is the challenge to, to work out how they all knit together right now. Having a chat with um, yeah, with comrades I, like yourself helps, Carlo. Yeah. If you find the answer, let me know because that's something that... Um, it's a cliche that you know less the older you get, but it's based on truth. I just... Yeah, older I get, the less I know about a way forward <laughs> um, beyond the urgency of there being one. Yeah, well, all, all I know right now is that um, I think um, you can't just keep pushing old ideas, um, particularly within new times, and expecting the same results. Uh, I think there needs to be that that flexible, nuance examination of, of what's happening now. And um, yeah, I, yeah no, to that extent, there's been a bit of value th- towards what we've ch- talked about, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Small contribution to solving the world's problems. Yeah, we might do that one next episode, Carlo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. All right, well, um, I, might, uh, I might wrap it up there, Carlo. So um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll have to see where things go with the Wanderers for the rest of this season. Um, I might see if I can actually turn up for a match. Uh, there's a game on Friday. Our final seasons are over, so yeah, you'll be guaranteed social distancing because even less people will turn up now. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you, you've you've kind of indicated to me that, that the outdoors seems to be better than the indoors right now. So um, yeah, I might um, I might consider it. I'll see how I go. That's, that's my feeling. If you catch it outdoors, though, I want to I want to know I'm not going to get sued. I qualifier is <laughs> I'm on me. <laughs> All right, I'll remember to put that disclaimer on the um on the on the episode, Carlo. Um, sure, sure. Don't, don't, don't assume I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, further disclaimer, <laughs> won't do that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, no problems, Carlo. And um, yeah, hopefully we uh, we have we can chat again sometime. Thanks for your time. Yeah. yeah. See you. Bye.